I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations, my friends. Welcome to another glorious day in the neighborhood. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Here's my coffee, Mickey Mouse. Dig me some Mickey Mouse coffee. And I'm Paige, your host. Today we're going to continue on our little sojourn in Revelation. Now, Revelation, I'm not going to be able to do a chapter at a time. I've always been fascinated by it, a little bit scared of it. So I'm going to slow up and take it a bit at a time. The first part of Revelation, Paul, Paul, John, is writing to the uh, churches in Asia Minor. John is at the end of his life. He's been released from Patmos. And this is a vision he received on Patmos. And he's toward the end of his life in Ephesians. Is toward, I guess, uh, he's toward the end of his life in Ephesus, excuse me. And uh, he is writing this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. That's our geographical context. This, And then he has little snippets. He's addressing, has a special message for each of the seven churches. So... And then from that point on, everything he writes is to all of them. But this is, he has snippets for each special letter. The first church he talks to is the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus plays a very special role in the New Testament. Um, a large portion of the New Testament is directly connected to Ephesus. For instance, Timothy was Paul's apostolic representative in Ephesus. So Paul wrote First and Second Timothy to Timothy. Timothy's at Ephesus. Of course, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians at Ephesus. Um, John, the apostle, writes his gospel. He's in Ephesus. He wrote it at the end of his life. He writes First, Second, and Third John and Revelation toward the end of his life, all in Ephesus. Um, some of the letters. Other epistles written by Paul were written to them while he was in Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus longer than he was in any other place where he established churches. And Ephesus became, I would say, the uh, influential center of the Christian church toward the end of the first century. Uh, the church headquarters, if you will, moved from Jerusalem to Antioch to Ephesus and eventually to Rome and then from Rome to all points west to where we are now. Um, at this time of writing, Ephesus was very influential. Ephesus was possibly the second most important city in the Roman Empire next to Rome. It was at least the capital city and the most important city in Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey. So Ephesus was very important. And so Ephesus was the first church that John the Apostle addresses. So let's take a look at that right now, and then we're going to chat a little bit. We're going to spend a lot of time on something that um, has always puzzled me, something a group of people called the Nicolaitans. So hang on, let's get started. All right, we're going to start by going to the end 
of this little snippet to Ephesus. We're going to read that first. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. First of all, everybody who knows me knows I'm a big fan of context. Historical context, cultural context, etc. Historical context. And I know that John is writing this special little snippet of letter to his church at Ephesus. That's its primary target. However, this letter, this revelation, is going to be read to all the churches in Asia Minor. So the other churches are going to hear what he has to say to Ephesus. Plus he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That whoever means whoever's listening to God. Whoever has ears that are capable of hearing what God is saying, let them hear what the Spirit says. Guess what? That includes us. We can benefit from what he's about to tell Ephesus. And we will. So let's go back up now to the first part of this little snippet to Ephesus and see what he has to say. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Alright, first of all, angel. Is he talking to a literal angel? Because up here, at the end of um, chapter 1, he says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. Now the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, maybe these are literal angels? But the word angel means messenger. A messenger of God. I've heard some commentators say this could also be referring to the pastors, the messengers of God appointed as leaders of these seven churches. So these could be literal angels or these could be pastors. Revelations is a very, very difficult book in many regards because of the symbolism involved. So this could be writing to the pastor at the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. I, I, I don't know, I, I don't see why John would be writing a message to a real live angel. Right? I, I don't see God doing that. Or God. I, I don't see John writing to a real angel. But I'm open to that interpretation. Anyway, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. All right, he commends them first. They don't tolerate wicked people. You will not let people who falsely claim to be apostles or leaders. You've persevered. You've endured hardships. Ephesus was a very uh, big center of occultism and emperor worship and uh, some very strange religious practices that was wrapped around all these temples to Diana, Artemis. There's different versions of emperor worship um, the ch it wasn't easy being a church in that city. Paul was run out by the silversmiths, if you remember correctly, in Acts. So this this was no cakewalk being a Christian 
in Ephesus and they are commended for their perseverance and they've endured hardships and not only that apparently the church took to heart Paul's instructions to Timothy about what leadership in the church should look like what kind of life they should live um, you remember in first and second Timothy he talks about deacons and elders and the um, standard of their life as a Christian leader what it should look like this is what an elder looks like this is what a deacon looks like apparently they took that to heart and in John's epistles first second third John he was addressing a rising tide of heresy known as Gnosticism that one of the facets of it was that flesh is evil spirit is good let the body do what it wants it doesn't matter just know that the spirit is saved because you're a Christian so you can do what you want in the body know that your 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 spirit is saved that's heresy and that was part of what was going on in the first century so apparently they took that to heart and they stood strong on orthodoxy they were powerful in the scripture they didn't let false apostles into the into the city apparently yet as an admonition for them. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. They're not. I don't know if that's they've forsaken the love to God or to the neighbors. Remember, the whole New Testament can be wrapped up in a love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbors as yourself. Apparently, they have forsaken this. They're orthodox. They're powerful. They're scripturally correct in their interpretation and application of scripture as to behavior but they don't have the fervor they used to they don't express the love that they used to when they first were believers now uh, there is a gentleman by the name of John Wimber and he made a comment years and years and years and years ago he felt that every denomination after a couple generations should shut the doors sell the property and start over because he says there's almost always a move of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of a denominational movement. And this movement of the Holy Spirit is bringing uh, something fresh to the body of Christ, whether it's in the area of worship, or the word, or instruction, teaching, whatever. And the first generation is always very, very excited and very, very devoted. The second generation, not quite as excited as and devoted, because they, but they grew up watching their parents experience what they experienced. But by the time the third generation comes along, the first generation is leaving. And this third generation, they just do things because that's the way you've always done it, and the fervor is gone. Well, guess what? This is about 50 or 60 years, perhaps. Uh, I'd say about 50 years after the establishment of the church at Ephesus, where there was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, a powerful revival that scattered out and established all these other churches. This is about 50 years after the fact, and they're not as fervent as they used to be. It's not because the people that started it aren't as fervent. The people who started in this movement are probably gone. This is probably second or third generation believers in Ephesus. And by the time you get to the third generation, they don't have the first-hand experience that the first and second generation people had. They're very orthodox. They're very scriptural. They're very knowledgeable in scriptures. They don't allow false teachers. Good on you. But you don't love 
like you used to. He's talking to the church. That part's missing now. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's exactly what it sounds like to me. He's saying, I will take the church away. I'll shut the, I will shut the church down, Jesus is saying. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, tradition has it that Ephesus became the home of John the Apostle and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And John took her to Ephesus, and that's where she died. And that's where John later died. Um, he wrote his letter to the revela his revelation. He wrote his epistles and he wrote his gospel from there. Let's take a look at the Nicolaitans. According to Irenaeus and Hippolytus, two early leaders of the early church who recorded many of the events that occurred in the earliest recorded days of church history, post John the Apostle, said the Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch, who had been ordained as a deacon in Acts 6. That verse says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Nicholas was a proselyte. That means he was a Gentile who embraced the Jewish faith, who then later embraced the Christian faith. He came from paganism, all right? He came out of the pagan culture, the pagan Greco-Roman culture, and very much unlike the other six deacons who were of Jewish descent. Nicholas's pagan background meant that he had previously been immersed in the activities of the occult, or at least associated with it, right? Um, according to the writings of the early church leaders, and this would include Arrhenius, by the way, the uh, descendancy from John the Apostle would be John the Apostle, Polycarp, who had been a disciple of John's, and Irenaeus. So Irenaeus is one generation removed from John the Apostle. John the Apostle, Polycarp, Irenaeus. So when Irenaeus writes about Nicholas, it's very probable he got the information from Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. I think his writings are faithful. I think his writings are dependable. So when he writes about Nicholas, I accept it as truth, to be honest with you. According to the writings of the early church leaders, hint, Irenaeus, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise, implying that total separation between Christianity and the practice, practice of occult paganism was not essential. In other words, you don't have to separate it. Early church records say that it seems apparent that the next, this Nicholas of Antioch was so immersed in occultism, Judaism, and Christianity that he had a stomach for all of it. He had no problem intermingling these belief systems in various concoctions and saw no reason why believers couldn't continue to fellowship with those still immersed in the black magic of the Roman Empire and its countless mystery cults. Look, you can hang with these people, Nicholas would be saying. It's not a big deal. Um, I just see so many parallels with Christianity today sometimes where we make so many accommodations to godless activities and, pe and practitioners of godless things and we call it okay 
That's apparently what Nicholas was doing. Now, Nicolaitans. Here's another little article. A term appearing in the Revelation. It described members of a Christian congregation who held a doctrine that the Lord hated. Arena said that they were followers of Nicholas of Antioch, a proselyte who was among seven men chosen to serve the Jewish congregation, who, and this man had forsaken true Christian doctrine. Irenaeus said they lived in unrestrained indulgence. Now, Hippolytus, who comes along later in the uh, descendancy of church fathers, Hippolytus confirmed this by noting that Nicholas left correct doctrine and had the habit of indifference as to what a man ate and how he lived. In the letter to the church at Pergamum, the Nicolaitans were associated closely with those people who held the teachings of Balaam. A story is recorded of the seduction of the Israelites, which is what happened with Balaam. I'll continue on here. The letter to the church of Pergamum specifically charged them with having seduced people into eating meat offered to idols acts of fornication. There were a people who used Christian liberty as an occasion for the flesh against which Paul warned in Galatians. The enticement to such a course of action was the pagan society in which Christians lived where eating meat offered to idols was common. Sex relations outside marriage were completely acceptable in such a society. The Nicolaitans attempted to establish a compromise with the pagan society of the Greco-Roman world that surrounded them. The people most susceptible to this teaching were no doubt the upper classes, believe it or not, who stood to lose the most by a separation from the culture to which they belonged to prior to their conversion to Christianity. It may be that the doctrine of Nicolaitans was dualistic. They probably reasoned that the human body was evil anyway, and only the spirit was good. That's that Gnostic heresy that John was talking to. A Christian, therefore, could do whatever he desired with his body because it had no importance. The spirit, on the other hand, was a recipient of grace which meant that grace and forgiveness were his no matter what he did. They were those ready to compromise with the world. They were judged by the author of Revelation to be the most dangerous because the result of the teaching would have conformed Christianity to the world rather than have Christianity changed the world. Eusebius, another church father, indicated that this sect did not last very long and in all probability the only knowledge of their teaching that is possible will be found in the slight references to them in Revelation and in the writings of further church fathers like Irenaeus Hippolytus. Now here's another thought. Occultism was a major force that warred against the early church. In Ephesus, the primary pagan religion was the worship of Diana, Artemis. There were many other forms of idolatry in Ephesus, but this was a primary object of occult worship in that city. In the city of Pergamos, there were numerous dark and sinister forms of occultism causing Perminus, Pergamus excuse me, to be one of the most wicked cities in the history of the ancient world. In both these cities, Ephesus and Pergamos, believers were lambasted and persecuted fiercely by adherents of pagan religions, forced to contend with paganism on a level far beyond all other cities. Nicolaitium was a religion of integration of different religious systems and thoughts. So you can see the Nicolaitan, Nicolaitism was very, very, very dangerous. And it saddens me that proof appears to be that the Nicholas appointed as a deacon in, in Jerusalem is the man who was who is pushing this heresy forward. <clears throat> 
which means that the apostles made a huge colossal mistake when they anointed him. Now, how could they have known? They couldn't. Um, how many people have we met in our life, Christians, that uh, are bigger than life and appear so correct and so full of life and and fervency only later in life to be discovered that they really weren't walking with God at all. Uh, we had a recent thing happen in, in Christianity where a revered Bible teacher, I'm not going to mention his name, a revered Bible teacher after he was dead was found to have been very sexually promiscuous and abusive to women. It's one of the saddest things that's hit the Christian church. This man was uh, so full of life and on the outside the epitome of the perfect orthodox Christian teacher and yet his lifestyle betrayed him. Nicolaitium Nicolaitism, excuse me, apparently tried to blend Christianity with all the other religions in the area. And we have some of that today. Uh, the Baha'i faith is a faith that tries to bring all religions together under one roof. Um, part of that philosophy, all mountains reach to the sky, all rivers flow to the ocean type thing. But this is more than just a philosophy the lifestyle of the Nicolaitans was grotesque, very physically oriented. This was a dangerous thing. And John says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. I hope you who have ears, he's saying, has ears to hear what God is saying to Ephesus, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To those who are victorious against this Nicolaitan spirit, to those who are victorious against the grotesque lifestyle, to those who are victorious in resisting the attempt to blend your faith with the world's lifestyle around you, to those who are victorious over that, you will have the right to eat from the tree of life. Whew. Tough stuff. Alright. Well that, ladles and jelly spoons, is where I'm going to leave this. we got some thinking to do here. Our Christian faith is not meant to be blended into the world around us. Our Christian faith calls us to stand apart from the world around us. That may mean persecution. It may mean difficulties. It may mean even death. Do not fall victim to the thought that we can accommodate the world around us. You can't. God is God. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, folks. Love your neighbors yourself. Do not accommodate the world. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. And folks, I'm out of here.
God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself.